0: Welcome back to the Humans of ID podcast, with a twist. Careers and Professional Development Edition, hosted by the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science, ID, Student Organizers, Careers and Professional Development Team. In this episode, I'll be joined by LSE Assistant Professor Mavamli James. Professor Mavamli James is an Assistant Professor in International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies. She specializes in the politics of humanitarian intervention in the context of conflict and displacement with regional focus on the eastern democratic republic of the congo her work has been published in the journal of humanitarian affairs previously worked as a lecturer at the oxford department of international development in the university of oxford research fellow at the department of global health and development at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and formal external research consultant for Médecins Sans Frontières. Whether you recognized her work published in the Third World Quarterly Development and Change Medical Anthropology Journal of Intervention and in State Building Disasters, Social Science and Medicine, to her incredible lecture this term in forced migration and refugees, it's a pleasure. My name is Michaela Ammons-Levitt. I am your host for this podcast episode and here I am with the Professor family James.
1: Hello, how are you? Hello, I am well. How are you?
0: I'm good. Um, the elevators broke today. The elevator it's is broken, broken today. Yeah, it's crisis. The, the stairs are not my best friend today. <laughs> but more importantly, we are thrilled that we had the opportunity to talk to you today, given your outstanding and multifaceted experience and professional experience in humanitarianism. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. Are you good with that? Yes. Okay. So to let the audience kn- who may or may not know, I have the pleasure of being your student, a matter of fact, today, and attending <laughs> your lectures and seminars this term. And let me say, like I mentioned before, you're an incredible lecturer. It's very kind. Um, and I hate to center on myself, which is so true, but I take notes. Wonderful. What? I always want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and your seminars are so encouraging, insightful. They foster such a great environment for humility and knowledge so can you tell us a little bit more about your experience
1: of being a lecturer at LSE? Oh that's very kind always really nice to hear how it's going and absolutely so I joined LSE in September last year 2023 um, as an assistant professor in the international development department and so it's early days but it's wonderful to be here and it's fantastic to work in a department which is so specialized um, in exactly the kind of things that interest me and the things I work on, so thinking about humanitarianism, uh, development and conflict, uh, working with people like um, Stuart Gordon and David Keane, um, and it's wonderful that we have so many students who are really interested in those themes as well, so it allows us to do something quite, quite specialised and situating it in development studies more broadly. So I've really enjoyed it so far um, and I'm glad you're enjoying the course as well. I am, and you are currently teaching,
0: um, for the audience to know, I'll do the date, this is winter 2024 term, <laughs> um, forced migration and refugees. And it seems like you're coming from this very heavy research background. And mm. I wanted to know what drove you to pursue your research, what gravitated you towards your work in DRC in particular? Mm-hmm. Um, and were there any main inspirations?
1: Yeah, um, good question. So I suppose I came to this uh, as the position of a historian. So I did African history to begin as my undergraduate and in whatever kind of thing we were studying, whether it was the Cold War or thinking about um, anti-colonial struggles for, for self-determination independence, sitting in Central Africa and looking at the world's events from the perspective of somewhere like Eastern DRC, I always thought it was really productive, really interesting and shone a light on global events that we might often view from the perspective of um, the US or Europe. And I started to realise just how interesting looking at Congolese politics was and its experience of the kind of 20th century and all of the code's key political events. Um, So that's how I got interested in Central Africa and DRC in particular. And then I studied Development uh, Masters and I was really interested in looking at international intervention in DRC and thinking about all of the legacies of that kind of protracted intervention and more concretely understanding how it works in practice. So how do humanitarian agencies, big international agencies work in a region like Eastern DRC, which has been at the sort of epicentre of protracted violence and conflict for the last 30 years. So that's how I came to study um, and work in Eastern DRC. And I was in particular interested in the majority of people who work for a big international humanitarian organisation, um, who are those who are working at home who have been employed in their country of origin or country where they hold a passport and many are working at home in that they're working where they grew up they know lots of people locally so i was interested in understanding the perspectives of those people and the importance of their humanitarian practice to international intervention more broadly that's really interesting especially you just
0: to make sure i'm right you are studying the people who are who are from the DRC who are working in these humanitarian crises. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the sort of national staff category. Okay. And on that term of national staff, which is incredibly important in terms of humanitarian crises, it seems, seems that when people think about joining um, aid agencies, mm-hmm. they're thinking about it through this, in my opinion, this Western type of lens where mm-hmm. um, they're going to go to Geneva, they're going to go to maybe um, the Hague or wherever. And, there's sometimes this lack of recognition of the national staff that exists mm, mm. in the complexities that go into it can you touch more on that
1: absolutely so you know to a certain extent if you're going to work for a big international organization it would make sense that people would think about the big centers of gravity and power places like geneva or paris mm-hmm. or london um but in reality for most of these big ngos the majority of their staff working on the ground are actually putting that policy into practice are nationally hired staff. Um, So I started my research career by looking at the big humanitarian organization, Médecins Sans Frontières. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested in how humanitarian organizations work in a conflict environment. How do they manage security? How do they negotiate their access? And I became particularly interested in the role that nationally hired humanitarians were playing in those processes. And in particular, in deciphering a really complicated political environment for foreign interveners who needed to grapple with it really quickly in order to do their work. Um, So absolutely, I was trying to take a shift away from Geneva, away from Paris to look um, at the people on the ground and most of them were working at home. And I think that part
0: of what you said about um, that shift in that perspective is incredibly important, um, especially as an aspect of your career, especially in the 21st century. And um, more importantly, as I might say, there tends to be this exhaustion of both turmoil and Mm. invention in the 21st century because there's been so much happening. In particular, there's been more amplified attention since October surrounding humanitarian crises, Mm. conflict. Um displaced persons and then aid and how that has been amplified i think in somewhat of a positive light because now we're paying attention and having these conversations um like Tigray, ethiopia sudan mm, drc mm. yemen um so on and so forth and it makes me sometimes grapple with this effectiveness and the complexities of ngos and ios and thinking through that lens how are humanitarians managing security in this climate
1: yeah really good question absolutely i think we hear more and more about how difficult it is Mm -hmm. um, to intervene and and to work as a humanitarian um, in these kind of protracted crisis or conflict environments. Um, So that was my kind of key question of research when I I started looking at the politics of humanitarian intervention in Eastern DRC. Um, And as a bit of context, I I look at somewhere called North Kivu, which is a province um, in um, the east. And this is an area which has been in conflict uh, with kind of violent dynamics since the 1990s um and i was really interested in how an organization like msf comes in um, and maintains its presence in an area where there are over 100, 120 rebel groups where kind of every day is militarized and there are all these really complicated political connections um so i suppose on the one hand my kind of answer to this was about shared interests mm. so i was really interested in how people working for MSF negotiated their access with rebel groups on the ground. And yes, my first element was those shared interests. There's lots of strategic interests why people might want an organisation like MSF to work in their area. So there are clear strategic interests for a national government. Perhaps MSF can um, pull some weight in in a dilapidated national health structure. Um, But for rebel groups, there are also interests um, it looks good to have service provision in your area. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of um, these armed networks are embedded in the community themselves, so it's in their interest that their family, that they themselves can access healthcare. Um, it might look good internationally. Um, and it's also, as I said, free access for their, for their wounded soldiers. So that was one element. But I suppose what I was really interested in, and that's my approach to this, is the ethnographic focus on relationships. Um, and networks. So by looking at nationally hired Congolese humanitarians, I was interested in how they made use of um, their really varied backgrounds, their political backgrounds, their uh, personal networks, um, as a kind of resource in their humanitarian practice. So I was really interested in how they were trying to use these personal networks, um, from their really varied histories, as a resource in their humanitarian practice and the kind of risks that that involved using your personal networks in order to negotiate for a big humanitarian agency and your employer. Um, And by having that approach to managing security and thinking about negotiations for access, I was interested in how those strategic interests, but also those those personal relationships were interacting. So that was my approach. And I think my kind of broader conclusion um, was trying to think beyond Humanitarians as external interveners that are somehow separated from the political environment and instead to think about how they weave themselves into the political environment and kind of existing um, uh, governance structures through these negotiations for access, through negotiating what their work would look like in practice, and also through making uh, use of all the personal relationships of their staff to existing political military actors. I think that is incredibly
0: important talking about and somewhat giving humanity back to national staff mm, in this mm. form of recognition. You've also men- mentioned um, when dealing with armed groups, the complexities of special rebels who also gain aid and there tends to be this odd symbiotic relationship. And granted, there's so many more complexities that go into mm. the work that national staff have to do. Um, But when mitigating crises, which need aid, because I am understanding that not every crisis might be aid focused or might be development focused Mm or whatnot. How do these national staff um, negotiate with armed groups and where in your research that you've done, the considerations or implications that need to be taken into account?
1: Yeah, so I think the way that I would approach it is saying that um, when working at home, national staff are doing quite a lot of relational and interpretive labour so alongside whatever might be on their job description they're also doing other forms of work so they are helping interpret and translate perhaps that's literally in terms of language but also between different ideas different readings of for instance the humanitarian principles and what they should mean in practice and how you translate them to a really specific political environment so in the terms of the actual negotiations that are happening There's linguistic translation. There's also bringing together people with different visions, different understandings of what humanitarian aid should look like in that context. Um, But there's also a lot of the kind of relational labor. So that is maintaining a network with all the relevant political and military actors. Because often, um, even though the foreign staff are in positions of power, um, perhaps they're the project coordinators or the people running the whole country's programs, they are often not there for that long, perhaps they'll do a year, a uh, year and a half. So there's a lot of turnover at the top. And so it is up to the national staff who are there, some of them have been working for decades to maintain those relationships, um, to keep up that analysis of the political situation and what it might mean for the humanitarian organization's relationships and safety. Um, so there's a lot of work going on there uh, that goes beyond just the immediate meeting and negotiation in a particular room at a particular time. It's also um, a kind of ongoing project of maintaining relationships and analyzing the political environment.
0: And I wanted to know if you can share a significant case or situation where the humanitarian system has played a crucial role in the protection of displaced persons, how that international system has mitigated the large influx of humanitarian conflicts of and forced migration. And the I guess this broader question of, do we have the capacity and why are we still struggling? Mm. Clearly there's just so much
1: complex to that. So effectively does this ever work? (laughs) Yeah I mean really good question and I think given that the bulk of my on the ground experience is in the eastern DRC it's quite easy to be a pessimist about this to say that large-scale humanitarian response actually encounters so many difficulties in, in practice and we see this in the course we think about all of the critiques Um, that the broader humanitarian system has um, received, thinking about effectiveness, thinking about the humanitarian circus, elements of competition, overlap in mandate, Uh, also thinking about the contradictory effects in practice, so thinking about when the political economy of aid can do more harm than good. There are clearly a whole range of critiques based on a kind of post-colonial scholarship, thinking about how this is reproducing various power hierarchies. I suppose all of that is definitely relevant and makes sense of some of the dynamics I've seen in Eastern DRC. I do wonder though, increasingly with the UN budget being scaled back, with peacekeeping budgets being scaled back, and slowly we see a sort of retreat, um, I do wonder about the impact. I think sometimes we it takes a, a huge retreat of the international intervention infrastructure for us to see the kind of impact it was having. So in Eastern DRC, even though it falls short in many ways. I think the large scale removal of assistance would be catastrophic. Um, In terms of kind of interesting or cases where we see hope uh, and success, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it depends. Some people would take different cases from today and say, well, on the one hand, Immediate needs were cared for, but what about the long term? And perhaps there's intrinsically a critique there in humanitarian aid, um, which is even when it does its job on the tin, it provides kind of life-saving needs. Um, What about the longer term? So if we think about some of the mega camps in northern Kenya or the kind of mega refugee camps that are forming in the Middle East, on the one hand, immediate needs were really successfully cared for. People have access to food, to shelter, if we look at the kind of sphere standards, perhaps a lot of those were kind of successfully implemented, and there's been much better coordination. However, then I think it raises, again, difficult questions of political outcomes or political solutions. The idea that humanitarian intervention can only do so much, and this comes back to one of the oldest critiques in the book, which is trying to respond to kind of political problems with humanitarian solutions, and that's where we see lots of limitations of how the system works.
0: And I think that poses a really good question. This is something that I'm also, you know, constantly thinking about: is those long-term impacts? I um, spoke with Professor Gary Simpson, and we talked about this, um, the intersectionalities between this and international law. And mm-hmm. there was a mention about how the law tends to um, come in in the same way to mitigate the the government and you know, making sure that war crimes and that human rights uses are being kept but there's never that Mm. long-term plan as well and I think that's really interesting and given your research with DRC and understanding like I've continued to mention how complex and important it is for us to have these conversations and more importantly for those who want to enter this field Mm. and try to fight this good fight and do that research are there any experiences or anecdotes from your work in the field of research and with MSF that have left this long-lasting impression on you?
1: Mm, Very good question I think the kind of moment that for me was a very long, I'm going to say two, Mm -hmm. two different moments which have made me question my own kind of researcher hat, critical view of humanitarian aid. And I think the first one was I did a lot of research in kind of urban areas in Congo, where there was lots of criticism towards the dominant humanitarian system, kinds of inequalities that have reproduced, there was lots of kind of ambivalence Mm -hmm. towards the larger international humanitarian system. However, when I went to go and live and travel in rural areas, in particular in Masisi, which is one area in eastern DRC, I was really struck by how the kind of MSF project that I was looking at, which was a large hospital in a rural area, I was struck by how it built its own social world. And so the appreciation of the humanitarian work that was taking place there was also about this being a town where everyone knew someone who worked for MSF or where the hospital had been part of everybody's everyday lives. And I think their discussions with people about, okay, it has humanitarian presence been here long enough? Sh- is it time for MSF to withdraw? I was really struck by the answers there, being like, well, no, that would be a form of abandonment and mm. neglect. Um, and so I, I, that sort of challenged my initial views about um, seeing humanitarian aid and its projects in their complexity and thinking about the kind of human relationships and social worlds that they build. Um, which sometimes we can miss in either theoretical critiques or the broader kind of news cycle critiques about about what intervention is and how it works in practice. I think the second moment that really struck me was when I was living in Goma, which is uh, the capital of North Kivu province. There were lots of debates about whether the UN peacekeeping mission, which has been there for a very long time, it's sort of the UN's oldest and most expensive peacekeeping mission, lots of debates and controversy about whether this mission should leave And I was travelling through the city and uh, in the space of about a week I managed to go through two different protests. One protest was calling for the peacekeeping mission to leave, Mm -hmm. based on well-founded critiques of its effectiveness um, and also a broader kind of political commentary on where the priorities are, saying what about civilian protection of life, Um, who's making money? Is this just a political economy which is sort of serving the interveners and that was the kind of big political critique but at the same time I passed a protest of uh, Congolese employees of the peacekeeping mission who had recently been fired because of scale downs okay. and they were saying we are now humanitarians we have been working in the sector for a long time you can't just make us uh, unemployed um, and so I thought that those two protests as a story of two protests in one city for me, really struck me about just how complicated the politics of international intervention are and the kind of unintended impacts they can have in the political economy, but also in terms of people's lives.
0: That's a really good point, talking about um, how complicated it is for the political system of humanitarian NGOs. And I know this is a, a such a big question, but mm. is, there, is there a way to, like, do we know the answer? We've seen the same effects happen over and over mm. again with more humanitarian crises. Um, Do we know the answer to um, implementing long term effectiveness? Is
1: it possible?
0: Is Hmm. it inevitable?
1: Very good question. The academic in me wants to ask what effective would mean in practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think perhaps the most interesting thing about thinking about humanitarianism and certainly for people that want to enter the sector is that it is such a broad church it is a community a labor which encompasses such a broad range of organizations agencies approaches that clearly share a common goal this is about shared humanity um, and the value of humanity but i think they also have crucial differences about what they're trying to do and therefore what effectiveness would even mean so i think it would depend on the kind of organization and the kind of goals i think looking at kind of a dunantist organization or an organization that has quite a minimalist vision of what it's trying to do. So an organisation like MSF, on paper is just about preserving human life. It says, you know, the broader political kind of changes, social changes that need to be made to change the structural system that impacts people's lives, that's beyond our remit. We are about preserving biological human life. And if you look at it like that, you could say that a lot of MSF's mega hospitals, projects they've been running for a really long time, are effective in keeping people alive, in improving health outcomes, in providing access to healthcare that didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. But of course that raises a whole broader set of questions about what happens when they leave. Also, the limited extent they can't work everywhere, so where do you work? Mm -hmm. What happens if you're providing access to healthcare that didn't exist before you and won't exist after you? So I think that even a minimalist vision of humanitarianism comes up in practice. Against all kinds of difficulties and problems and I think really at the heart of it it's about how humanitarian intervention tries to grapple with its relationship with politics and the nation-state.
0: Yes it seems almost bittersweet um, I'm hearing these nodes of bittersweetness especially with this notion of it's great with the basic human human rights and providing this humanity but then when they leave there's mm. this bittersweet moment of we need more especially of Governments might not have the capacity or Mm, mm. their own internal politics struggles. Um, And I want to touch more on your consultancy research, noting your experience with MSF. Mm. And um, you've explained it, but touching on how the humanitarian system works, their purposes. I know you've mentioned humanity, but what about the principles and Mm. overall um, learning about the humanitarian system, how that implemented into your work as a research consultant for an NGO?
1: Yeah, really good question. So um, I started off my engagement with MSF as a PhD student. So I conducted very much an independent research project on their work. Mm-hmm. They were my subject of mm-hmm. my ethnographic study. I then did some postdoctoral research where I studied a Ebola vaccine trial and I was the ethnographic researcher studying the politics of this trial, and MSF was part of this consortium with uh, a Congolese institution, Congolese state, and so I was studying the politics of this vaccine trial more generally. And through these two projects, really um, one theme that jumped out, and one thing I wrote quite a lot about, was the kind of hierarchies and inequalities that are embedded in this way of humanitarian um, programming. and. I was sort of interested in how it's almost embedded in the system. Responding to a humanitarian emergency requires a focus on the here and now, or redirects attention to the here and now, and it justifies a range of intervention models which ultimately can help reproduce different hierarchies. And when you're intervening uh, in a formally colonized state, there are huge uh, disparities in wealth and power. All of that comes to the fore in quite a powerful critique of humanitarianism today. So that was a thread throughout my work. And then in the light of 2020, when there was the Black Lives Matter movement um, and there was a real internal activist campaign within MSF to decolonize. Mm. And lots of kind of uh, interesting and and fascinating conversations about what that would mean in practice, what that should mean in practice. And so it was a real moment of reckoning within the humanitarian sector um, to discuss what might change look like. Um, and what's possible within the current setup. And so at this moment, MSF invited um, me and uh, three other researchers, um, Dr. Molly Naisango, who's from Uganda, Dr. Leoba Hirsch, um, who is currently based at Edinburgh, and Dr. Eleanor Davey, who's currently based in Paris. And we had all in some ways engaged with these themes and they invited us in as kind of external researchers um, to do a consultancy project on inequality writ large in MSF. This is a huge mandate Uh, It was a huge topic and what we did was have access to people that work for MSF to ask them how does inequality manifest in this organisation. But really what the project also did was look at how MSF has been trying to respond to these critiques and trying to reform. So that was the kind of engagement that we had as a consultancy project and as uh, external researchers who were invited in to study the organisation. And I think it's very interesting linking that to a broader conversation about principles. Um, And that's what some of my um, research looked at in Congo, was how ideas of neutrality, impartiality, and independence are really useful tools for working in a conflict zone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely central um, to to perform in a certain way when you're in uh, a conflict zone where people are making all kinds of um, decisions about whose lives are worth what. The humanitarian position that all lives are worth the same it actually becomes a political position in and of itself yeah. and one that humanitarians think is worth defending. But what I became interested in from a slightly critical way was how ideas of neutrality stuck to certain people and not others. So who was considered able to embody those organisational principles often, I thought, came with a whole load of assumptions where some people were considered to be neutral and others were not. And I think that can interact with organizational inequalities between different staff members in really um, counterproductive ways.
0: Wow, that is, that's a lot to... That's, <laughs> that's a lot. lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And, it, it, and honestly, it's truly interesting, without a doubt, I'm sure, as you've shared, this has led you to incredible professional adventures and experiences and, and thoughts. And I wanna, I wanna know a little bit more about what would you consider to be your most notable achievement in Ooh. your career
1: so far? Good question. Huh. Gosh, am I allowed to say nothing? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I wish that my book was already out, because then I could have said my book, but it's not out. God, what is my most... Gosh, it's like an interview question that I'm failing to answer. <laughs> um... I think perhaps I would say that my biggest professional achievement so far, which is an ongoing process, is about how to toe that line between being academically critical Mm
0: -hmm. towards
1: humanitarian practice and informed enough about the complexities of what it looks like on the ground in order to make sure that your analysis is useful and valid to people who are also working for the organisation. And I think that's a really difficult line to toe. It's quite easy to write very critical theoretical pieces, but I think that once you go and spend lots of time and watch how humanitarian organisations are trying to work in practice and spend time with long-standing staff, you suddenly see that you're far from having any kind of answer about what Mm -hmm. should be done differently. So I think that through spending lots of time, being very humble, and combining that with kind of academic theory, you can come up with um, certainly a more constructive critique, but one that's really analytically powerful um, beyond the kind of ivory tower. So I suppose it's not an achievement, it's my aim, which is ongoing. <laughs> an
0: ongoing aim. And honestly, I know there, like myself, who's just entering this, this subject and the setting and talking and learning from you, um, Uh, trying to reach this so-called Ivy tower and trying to Mm. tote this line. For those who are interested in pursuing a career Mm. in academia uh, or researching for organisations like yourself, humanitarian work, what advice could you offer gaining for those relevant experience to try to make a meaningful impact into this field?
1: Yeah, so I would say several things. If you want to go into academia um, and you're interested in studying humanitarianism, then I suggest that making links with humanitarian organisations is going to be key. Um, It's difficult, especially if you want to study an organisation. Why should they let you in to study them? But it's going to be key if you want to actually have real kind of long-term engagement and access to studying those practices on the ground. So that would be one um, kind of tip. For people that are are wanting to research humanitarianism or enter the humanitarian sphere as a researcher, I would say the absolute key is humility. Um, People have been working in humanitarian crises for a really long time. Um, I think there's perhaps a tendency when you approach a topic like humanitarianism to become really convinced actually by all these powerful arguments and critiques and I think a good dose of humility to know that these critiques have been there for a long time and there, there are lots of new critiques to, to be had but also to recognise that sometimes people who are most critical and I think insightful on the limitations of their work are the ones still trying to do it. So I think going and finding those people and talking to them, trying to understand how and why they grapple with all of that complexity is probably the most interesting and insightful thing you will get to do, whether you're looking to go into academia or humanitarianism.
0: That was so beautifully said, and it's so and it's so true. Um, as a young individual, continuing to learn how to have that humility, how to also have that empathy when um, you're, you're for those some sometimes your privilege comes into this access of trying to be compassionate for those that you're studying and looking upon who are actually Mm. going through it but you're in this opposite lens in a way of a sense of privilege and looking upon and trying to have that humility and humanity and what would you consider to be the most important skills that helped you when you first started out in academia in your main challenges
1: I think academia requires one key quality and if you've got that you can go far and that's curiosity Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think You've got to remain curious. Um, If you're in a seminar, in a talk, and somebody's talking about something you don't really understand or you know little about, don't shy away from it. See it as an opportunity. And I would say the curiosity is also going to be absolutely key to your perseverance, because entering academia requires a lot of perseverance. Your kind of training program to become an academic is going to be effectively working on the same essay title for three or four years. So you can imagine that that can get quite frustrating. Uh, It has its ups and downs, but curiosity in the world around you, curiosity in people, um, continuing to ask questions, um, and ultimately being open to changing your mind and having your mind changed um, is going to be key. So a good dose of curiosity mixed in with some, some humility yeah,
0: a, a beautiful cocktail,
1: <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> academic cocktail. That's the ideal. Yes. And uh, if
0: you had to give one final piece of advice, guidance, inspiration, or hesitation to the audience, or students, or those who are seeking out or want to get started in this career field, what would you say?
1: <laughs> who want to start out in humanitarian aid or yeah. academia? Both. Both. Gosh. Um. I think don't shut off from the world (laughs) this sounds like a strange piece of advice but when things are really difficult and grim I think we all have a tendency to become insular I think whatever you're looking to go into whether it's humanitarian aid which is going to involve engagement with international politics thinking about history uh, thinking about political economy or whether you want to become a researcher and you're going to have to write about those things and think about them very very um, deeply I think we need to remain um, curious about the world around us, and I see it as a form of social responsibility as well. Um, Not to shut off when things get difficult, to stay engaged, to stay curious as much as possible, and that's going to help you for whatever you want to do in the future.
0: That was beautifully said. So the audience, don't shut off. Don't shut (laughs) off.
1: Don't shut off. Continue to pursue.
0: Um, I will definitely take your advice, and we also hope that our listeners will too. So once again, thank you so much, Professor Mavamwe james for being our guest on the Humans of ID podcast organized by the Department of International Development, hosted by LSE, ID student organizers, careers, and professional development team. Thanks to you today, we had an opportunity to explore some of the prospects, insights, and challenges when entering the international development professional arena, especially when engaging with the complexities and intricacies of aid agencies when trying to mitigate humanitarian aid relief. And, of course, your knowledge of the Democratic Republic of Congo that continues to leave a space and door open for humanitarian crises that are neglected. We thank you for your humanity, humbleness, and humility. It's both comforting and encouraging. I would like to give a special thanks to all of our listeners, the Department of International Development, Maya Bolin, and Andrea Mayo Mayayo, all of the ID student organizers behind this podcast, too, including Rizan Ahuad, our co-script editor and social media creator, Valentina Papu, our co-script editor, and podcast blurb writer, and Shivani, our podcast manager. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or your preferred platform, and follow us at the LSE Department of International Development on Instagram and LinkedIn. Send us any questions, comments, suggestions, thoughts on what you would like to hear on the International Development link in bio, as we want to hear from you. So stay tuned for more thrust guests as we continue exploring further insights on how to start out on the development sector. This podcast will continue with special guests covering sectors from international organizations, government, NGOs, and think tanks. And the next podcast will be a studio episode joined by LSE professor Omar Aghazi. Until next time, this has been your host, Michaela Emerson-Levitt.